Alright, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for the latest episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. I am your host, Robert Winfrey, and I would love to thank you, as always, for joining me here. Boy, we got some stuff to talk about, huh? UFC 279 happened, and... Man, great. We're going to have to talk about the circumstances surrounding it before we actually talk about the fights themselves because, oh boy, that was a little bit nuts. Uh, we have an event to preview as well. Next week, the UFC is back at the Apex for UFC on ESPN Plus 68. Pretty good main event. Uh, very relevant bantamweight fight when Corey Sandhagen will fight Song Yudong. Darn good fight. And we've got some news not related to UFC 279 to talk about, so uh, we've got we got stuff to get into. All right. As always, please like, comment, subscribe, uh, star rating, written review. If you've done any and all of that, share. Tell a friend. Tell a stranger, uh, if at all possible. Let people know that you like the show. No, let them know where to find me. I appreciate anything and everything you can do. Uh, the usual boilerplate there. All right. So, UFC 279. Before we get to the results, we have to talk about what happened. So, first of all, there was no um, pre-fight press conference. This would have been Thursday. I think it was Thursday. Um, you, the UFC usually does one of these things. You know, you get... Some questions, you get the ceremonial stare-offs, and then you get the same kind of stare-offs the next day when you do the uh, ceremonial weigh-ins, but, you know, it's a thing. Uh, that got canceled because there was a backstage... The UFC released the footage of this, so it wasn't a full-blown fight. But there was a bit of an altercation between Kevin Holland and Kamzat Shemaev. I mean, earlier in the week, apparently Shemaev was at the UFC PI and got into a verbal altercation with Paulo Costa. Then Costa, who was in one of their cage setups, drilling something, I think with Jake Shields, actually. Like, Shields opened the cage door and was like, sure, come on in. And nothing came of it. And, I mean, nor should it have. I mean, the man's a couple of days away from fighting for a pretty for theoretically a large purse, or at least a decent purse. I don't actually know what Kamzat Shemaev makes. Risking that for your ego against Paulo Costa is just, it's stupid. Uh, so that was that, and then again, then we had him and Kevin Holland going at it at the backstage at the pre-fight press conference, so that got called off. Then we get to the weigh-in day, and reports start coming out pretty early in the day from people on the ground that Hamzat Shemaev is not going to make weight, and it's not especially going to be close. I think it was uh, Ariel Helwani who kind of mentioned, yeah, he's like 10 pounds over, which is a huge amount of weight to miss by. So we get to the weigh-ins. Nate weighs 171. Um, can't say Nate's always made weight. He had a, when he fought Rafael dos Anjos, he missed weight. He had some kind of an injury that was messing with it, but, you know, Nate, I think that's the only time. Nate's one of the examples I tend to cite when I go, you know, 
with the chaos and randomness of the universe, somebody you're probably gonna miss once. Um, but so Nateways 171, Kamzat Shemaev, for a fight at welterweight, which non-title they'll give you the extra pound for some reason, weighs 178 and a half. You missed by eight pounds, man. I'm just going to call it eight for the sake of rounding. I don't think that that's not the biggest miss in UFC history. I think that's still William Knight, actually. He was supposed to fight at light heavyweight and weighed. Didn't he weigh like 218? He had, he had a legitimate double digit miss. But this was bad. Well, this immediately causes chaos. Because if you miss weight, um, one, the commission has to sanction the fight again at the new with the new weight issues. Two, the fighters in place have to both agree to it. If your opponent misses weight, they essentially invalidate the bout agreement that has been signed. You have to be presented with a new one. You have to agree to it again. Well... Nate Diaz, this, again, this is just kind of reports that came out. His people, and apparently him, were like, you know, the guy didn't even really try to make weight. We think he's cheating. Uh, so, no, we're not going to fight him. Now, that is... I'm not I'm not mad at Nate about this, or anyone. Your opponent misses weight. You're no longer obligated to fight them. Period. They miss weight by that much? Um... Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't blame anybody for saying no. You missed by eight pounds. I'm not fighting you. It's a giant weight discrepancy. I mean, do you understand that? Like, if this happened in boxing, and I, you can consider this a positive or a negative, but with the way boxing weight classes are structured, that's almost a two weight class miss. Right? I forget what weight class in box. I think middleweight in boxing is 170. Middleweight or might be light heavy. I forget exactly, but for the sake of argument, if you're supposed to fight a boxing match at 170 and you weigh 178, like there's a whole other weight class that you skipped over there. It's it's huge. Now, you can argue that boxing has too many weight classes, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. I am saying that when you're missing by that much, it's a real problem. And the stories we've got coming out of this are weird. So the official line from Hamzat and the UFC is that a the, the relevant doctor told Hamzat Shemaev to stop cutting weight. that there was some kind of medical issue. I'm not saying that isn't true. I'm not saying that. I am saying a lot of fighters have come out and said, you know, I've cut a lot of weight and I've never had a doctor check on me at all. Other fighters have been checked during the course of weight cuts. Like doctors have intervened in weight cuts in the past on occasion. It's very inconsistent. I mean, for crying out loud, they sent... You guys remember this? They sent Aspen Ladd out to the scale when she could barely stand. And where was the doctor there going, you know, this is medically inadvisable. 
so, like I said, I'm not saying there wasn't some kind of medical issue. I am saying I would like to see evidence beyond the UFC and Kamzat stating such. That's all I'm saying. Um, because, yeah, it's, uh, just, it's just weird. Like, if you've got a medical issue where the doctor says, okay, you should stop cutting weight, I can buy that. That might be body composition, right? To then all, to then in the same breath say, yet yeah, there's still no problem with you fighting a five-round fight in 24 hours or so. Um... <laughs> I don't quite know what medical condition exists where you would have to stop cutting weight, but would still be medically fit to fight for five rounds. That might just be ignorance on my part. They might exist. I'm going to say I don't know. That's not me facetiously going. I have a vast array of knowledge at my disposal, and this doesn't ring any bells for me. I genuinely do not know. But that's that's a little bit weird. Now... Shemaev was not the only fighter to miss weight, believe it or not. Um, we had a lot of weight issues. Let me talk about that before I talk about the reshuffled card. So just give me a sec here. Um, Hakeem Dawadu missed weight. He weighed 149.5 for a featherweight fight, so you know, 4-ish pound miss. Um, Almeida and Turkali was always catch weight. Um, yeah, we had our second ever miss at heavyweight. Chris Barnett weighed 167.5. And I'm forced to ask myself at the moment why there exists an upper weight limit for heavyweight. Um, I don't know. I. It seems weird that we have one in MMA. Boxing doesn't have one. You get to heavyweight in boxing, it's... I forget exactly what the... Let me double check, actually. What is the lowest... What is the lower end of boxing heavyweight? Because um, I know the I know the amateur system is different. Amateur has heavyweight and then super heavyweight, but they're I mean because Alexander Usyk and Anthony Joshua actually fought at the same Olympics. Usyk was heavyweight, AJ was super heavyweight. But when you get to the professional ranks, uh, Usyk obviously a cruiserweight and uh, Joshua heavyweight. I mean, Usyk now fights at heavyweight, but for the sake of uh, the argument there, like it's a little bit different amateur. There are some weight classes that the amateurs don't acknowledge, the professionals do. It's kind of weird. Um, yeah, 200 pounds and over are heavyweight in boxing. So they don't care. Like, you can weigh 300 pounds, fight a 200-pound guy. Uh, you might argue whether about the ethics of sanctioning that, but there is no there is no limit to the top end. I don't know why we have one in MMA. Maybe it's because there's so many just, like, weirdly large men in MMA. You know, guys like Zuluzinho, who's lost a lot of weight re- fairly recently, actually. Or, you know, Bob Sapp. Um, there, there's some very large men in MMA, but I don't know, it, it's just weird. It's weird that we have it. I'm not sure why we do. Um, frankly, I'd be okay if they did away with it. Yeah, again, we're talking like 206 and up, just whatever. But, so we had that. Um, 
The women's featherweight fight between Norma Dumas and Danielle Wolf. Both women struggled to make 145. I think they both weighed 146 officially, um, but they had to uh, use the old towel. And I don't mean the Daniel Cormier cheating to get the towel. I mean you had to have the uh, you know the stand put up so that you could get com- you, when you when you get to the point where you have to be naked to make weight. You know when every potential ounce of weight from fabric and whatnot makes that big a difference. That you had a hard cut. So they had uh, that was um, the fight between Irina Aldana and Macy Chasson was changed not at the last minute. This had been a catchweight for a little bit, but I think that was because of Chasson. But that was a catchweight. Of, we had three catchweight fights on the main card when it all was said and done. But we'll get to the specifics in a minute. So weirdness. We'd had a believe it or not, I think the UFC had a long run of smooth events if we're talking about execution. We hadn't had a good injection of chaos in quite some time. So we got chaos here. But in the wake of Kamzat missing weight and Nate going, I'm not fighting that guy if he weighed 178. What we wound up getting was a reshuffled series of fights. The original top three fights for this card were main event, Nate Diaz, Kamzat Shemaev. Co-main event, Tony Ferguson and Li Jing Leong. And a featured fight, third one down, of Daniel Rodriguez and Kevin Holland. Now, Rodriguez and Holland was a catchweight of 180 pounds. They made that fight on fairly short notice. Both of them said, did Rodriguez take that on short notice? Or was it just added on short notice? I want to double check that. Because... The... I think that's what it was. Like, they just got added to the card at such a point that, you know, they both kind of went, you know, making it all the way to 170 is not really advisable. We can do 180. And again, I think Rodriguez took it on short enough notice that that was part of the condition. And that, look, if both fighters agree beforehand to something like that, especially if you have something adjusted on short notice, I'm okay with it. I mean, I'm not up in arms. But that was a catch rate of 180. And that is kind of what opened the door here to all of this. <laughs> Crazy to think about that, but if those two had just fought at welterweight, um, so much of this no longer becomes all as feasible. But So, in the wake of this, um, reports are that Hunter Campbell was kind of the one spearheading keeping the fighters happy and negotiated with. Um, we get a complete reshuffling of those three fights to a new main event at welterweight of Nate Diaz and Tony Ferguson, a fight that I think a lot of us would have preferred. It was two older warhorses. Kamzat Shemaev, who weighed, again, 178, fought the fighter who weighed 180, well, one of them, Kevin Holland, who we'd also had a interaction with at the, post-fight press con- at the pre-fight press conference. And our last pairing... Thrown together because the others were occupied. Daniel Rodriguez, who weighed one, I think he weighed 179 for the 180 fight. Weighed 179 because that's what his contractual weight was. Now fights Li Jing Leong, who weighed 170 because he was fighting Tony Ferguson at 170. He might have weighed 171, but for the sake of argument, like the one pound, I don't think matters that much here. So poor Li Jing Leong kind of got screwed in all of that. 
Um, he's the only one who was giving up weight. He got a, I would argue, actually, a more difficult opponent, a lesser-known opponent as well. I picked Lee to beat Tony Ferguson. I thought he might have put some hurt on Tony. Uh, believe it or not, just the way Tony's been going. So I'll talk about Lee Jingle when we get to the result of that fight a little bit more. But that guy got, he got kind of the raw end of the deal here when it was all said and done. So that got all shuffled around. Um, and I've, I've got to say this because this annoys me. Uh, I think on Twitter or something or publicly more than once, Dana White kind of mentioned, you know, we got this done. We were able to shut, we were able to make this work and keep the card together because let's be very clear. Um, this was not a strong card. I talked about this last week. It's not a strong pay-per-view card. If they couldn't keep both Nate and Hamzat on this card, that's not worth money. Even if you only keep one of them, you could argue it's not worth money. I mean, maybe if you can keep Nate, but you have to keep Nate. If we don't get Nate Diaz versus Tony Ferguson here, if we just try to go main event Hamzat, Shemaev, and Kevin Holland... That's not a pay-per-view quality card. You could argue this isn't. It's a very low-end one. If we're talking fight quality. Now, Nate's star power obviously kind of counters that because he's a big deal. But just quality of fights, this was not a very good... It's not a very compelling card on paper. just wasn't. The reshuffled one is a little bit more fan-friendly. Probably sold a little bit less, though, if I'm being honest. Um, just as a matter of course. But the UFC kind of putting over itself, like, you know, our, our people got it done, yay us, no other organization in the world could have pulled this off, and, you know, you guys can't have this both ways. You see, I remember the first canceled UFC event, certainly of the Zufa era, when Dana White threw a tantrum and called John Jones and Greg Jackson sport killers. This was UFC... I forget the number. Um, it doesn't really matter. It was supposed to be John Jones... For the, briefly on the backstory. John Jones was supposed to defend the light heavyweight title against Dan Henderson. Several weeks out of the event, Dan Henderson tears his... I think it was his LCL or his MCL. One of the two. I think it was the MCL, actually. One of the ligaments in his knee. And doesn't really tell anyone. Now, fighters fight injured all the time. But if you have that kind of an injury, it might behoove you to inform the UFC. Um, or whatnot. Uh, just, I don't know. I mean, I would. But he thought he could fight with it. Then we get to fight week. Literally fight week. And Henderson, it's too much of a problem for him. He can't compete with it, with the knee injury. And I'm, I'm not even blaming the guy for not being able to fight with a torn, with a torn up knee. If you can't fight, you can't fight. I think he was wildly responsible. But the UFC then goes, well, we've got to save this card. So how about, 
they threw both Trail Sun and Leota Machida into the equation here as a potential opponents for John Jones. In fact, funny people forget this one. Dana White said, you know, Leota Machida's on a plane. He was in the middle of a flight, but we're going to call him, and he better accept the fight with John Jones. And Machida declined. Uh, they said, you know, again, we've got you know, Chael Sonnen's willing to come in on short notice and fight for the belt, and Sonnen was still kind of training with Dan Henderson at the time, and ultimately John Jones looked at the presented options and just kind of went, no, I don't, uh, which is his, again, that's, that's his right. He said, no, the UFC had to cancel the event because the event sucked. It was a weak event on paper. Feel free to look that one up. It's not a good event. And Dana, again, threw a fit, buried John Jones, buried Greg Jackson, etc., etc. Well, if it's all on the fighters, then the fighters should get all the credit when it does work out. Don't you think? But it's the UFC, so whenever things go wrong, it's not their fault. Very, very rarely. Whenever things go right, of course, it's their, of course they're the ones responsible for the success. So, no. Like, these six fighters, Diaz, Ferguson, Shemaev, Holland, Rodriguez, and Lee, and Lee, they're your heroes. Full stop. Like, I get the UFC, the, some of the people in positions of authority in the UFC had to work hard, work fast, and make this happen. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't get, it shouldn't be acknowledged for that. But if you get to just throw, if you get to throw fighters under the bus for not accommodating your schedule and whatnot, if, and that's all on them and not on you, you know, what, if we use that same logic, you should have fired a bunch of the front office for, again, the John Jones thing, because, hey, you couldn't make it work. Your guys couldn't do it. Well, you bury in Greg Jackson. But, no. When it works out, it's always glowing UFC, and, dude, fighters get the short end of every stick. Just, they do. I hope every one of those six guys got paid significantly for rearranging everything to make sure this card worked. You know, before we get to the fight, the last thing I'm going to say on this, and then we're going to get to the fights, I promise. Well, two things before we get to the fights, because I have to give you what were my predictions after the card was shuffled. But I heard it said this week, and I think it's... I hadn't thought of it in this way, but if you look at fighters that the UFC will quote-unquote go to bat for, it's the fighters who accommodate the UFC. This has been true for a while, but it's more true now, and just bear with me for a second here. For a while, it was fighters who would put on the good public face, who would accept whatever the UFC could cobble together, and who would kind of, again, do some of the promotional work with the UFC. You know, this is where guys like Chuck, Matt Hughes, you know, that generation of fighter, the ones the UFC was really buddy-buddy with, unless you were good friends with Dana personally, it's the ones who would kind of go to bat for the company in the public setting. Because the UFC, frankly, at that point, needed it. After that, after that period of time, so like post-tough boom, the fighters the UFC goes to bat for are the ones who... It's not quite the same as it was before. Again, going to bat for the UFC in public is not as necessary. It's helpful, but it's not as necessary. 
it's a combination of the ones who can draw enough on their own and it's largely that actually i think as i think about it you know, don't be acrimonious with the promotion but the ufc was very driven by what they thought you could draw as a fighter despite the fact that they tried to undercut it but that that was kind of the who would the ufc go to bat for right like think about it it's mostly the people they thought could draw the money well that changed this whole thing changed um I think mostly with the Fox deal, believe it or not. And it's certainly true now that we're now that they moved to ESPN, but starting with the Fox deal, the UFC's priorities shifted pretty radically. Because the UFC was they were still beholden to pay-per-view, but not uh, by the time we get to ESPN, this is completely changed. So let's talk ESPN for just a second, and the gobs of money the UFC makes out out of them. I mean, this is true. We know this is true from court documents. The amount of money the UFC is paid by ESPN covers their operational costs for the year. Straight up. So the UFC gets to basically start the year in the black, but there's a big caveat to this. The UFC is contractually obligated to put on X number of shows per month, or per month, per year. I don't think they break it down month to month, but per year. And the number was 40-something, I believe. And that's a lot. That's a lot of events. The UFC is basically every week. If you're producing 40, call it 42 for the sake of argument here. If you're producing 42 events out of a, what, 52 weeks a year? I'm going to double check that. Because I don't want to be very wrong. Yeah. So if you're producing events every, every week except for 10 over the course of the full year, you know, and this is what's this is largely what makes you successful at this point. If the UFC doesn't hit their contractually mandated number of events, their minimum number, whatever the minimum happens to be, then they're not going to get paid the amount of money. And ESPN pays them a lot of money a year, enough to again keep them operationally profitable, essentially at the start immediately. The UFC's priority at this point is not your star power. The UFC's priority at this point is not your friendship with upper management. The UFC's priority at this point in time, because of how they have structured their business, is that you fight a schedule or are willing to step up in a way that accommodates their schedule of events. Period. Not saying they don't want to have big stars. Sure they do. Not saying there aren't fighters that Dana White or other people like more than others. I'm sure there are. Who's the UFC going to, again, kind of go to bat for? It's anyone who is going to make sure 
going to do everything that they can to make sure that each and every UFC event that they have some degree of say over goes off. That the machine keeps turning. That's what they care about at the moment. And these six guys, a couple of them in particular, um, I, said, I hope they got paid because they, they're what made this event able to go forward in the way it was structured. All right, and lastly, before we get into the results, the new fights. Um, very briefly, my picks for these. If you would like to get a receipt for this, you're going to have to take my word that, I pre- that this is what I predicted. Okay, I didn't do another podcast. Somebody asked me, this came up, um, I want to say on the... Yeah, this would have been the live coverage for SmackDown that I was doing in the Wrestling Zone of 411 Mania. So if you want the receipts, it's in the comments there. Somebody asked me about it, and I just said, just, I mean, they asked me, like, are you going to do another podcast or what? And I just, I'm not going to do another podcast. I didn't really have the time. Between when it happened and what I was doing until the next, until the event started, it just didn't quite work out. But my my picks, such as they were, were Diaz over Ferguson, but that's a close one, Shamayev over Holland, and I did like Rodriguez over Lee. Now, because you already know the results, that means I picked all three winners. In fairness to me, now again, if you don't believe me, you can find the receipts. If you're going to take my word for it, hear me out very briefly about my logic here. Diaz and Ferguson is close, but I think... I thought Tony was going to be a bit too much. I think the mileage caught up to Tony, and I think the switch to five rounds wasn't really going to do him a tremendous amount of favors, all things considered. Um, it just the fight the fight ultimately kind of went the way I expected it to, believe it or not. So we'll get to that, but that was kind of my logic there. But it was close. Like that, that's kind of a coin flip on paper, but I think. Career trajectory-wise, I thought Diaz had more in the tank than Tony did at this point. Comes out over Holland, that's an easy call, as a prediction goes. Like, Holland has always struggled with wrestlers. Guess what Hamzat's really good at? Rodriguez over Lee is kind of the one that... Did I pick Lee in that? I forget. I genuinely forget which one of those two I picked here. I'm going to assume it was Rodriguez. I'm going to tell you, it's not. This is not me in hindsight going. Well, of course he won. Of course I picked him. I, I've been wrong in the past. I'll be wrong in the future. It's not an ego thing. I've been a pretty big believer in Daniel Rodriguez's skill set for a while. Um. So if I picked him, and again, this is the one that I'm iffy on because I went back and forth on this one a lot, more so than Diaz and Ferguson actually. I, I think I landed on Rodriguez because I've just I've been kind of a believer in what he's able to do physically since his debut, more or less. I mean, he's obviously better now than he was then, but I just I've liked the guy's skills, and that's not a knock on Lee. I think Lee is a criminally underrated fighter, but I I tend to kind of I tend to roll with Rodriguez a little bit more. It's a general rule. So that was kind of my logic there. And again, the first two I know I remember very clearly. Lee and Rodriguez. I might have gone Lee on that one. Uh, but just as a minor thing. Like that, 
I'm going to assume I went Rodriguez because I think that's what I thought going into the fight. And then I actually scored it for Lee, but we'll get to the fight in particular. But that was kind of where my head was going into the event for the three remade fights. So, main event. Nate Diaz defeats Tony Ferguson via guillotine choke 252 of the fourth. You know, I have to retire the old talking point a little bit here about, because like, Nate Diaz has never won a fourth round in his life. <laughs> Till now. Um, I had, okay, I was one of the few, and I don't think I was right in this, but doing this live, scoring it live, I actually had Ferguson up 30-27 going into the fourth. I'm not, the first round I'm start. I think I was wrong. I'll stand by Tony winning two and three. Um, I'll acknowledge they were close, but those two and three for Ferguson, I will absolutely stand behind. One, I'm not nearly as sold on. Um, one, I think I got wrong as I look back on it. But doing it live—that's the only way. I, I'm, the only way I'm going to talk about it here for this, for the sake of that. Doing it live, I scored it for Tony. What happened here? This is a weird fight. I don't mean bad. I certainly don't mean boring. This was just weird. And it got weirder the longer it went. The third round in particular is very weird. Um, ah, again, I'm struggling to kind of frame this. Nate Diaz basically fought the same way he does all the time. He threw in a few more kicks this time around, actually. Um, he was actually he was pretty decent about kicking Tony in the leg when Tony was exiting. Um, especially if Tony was exiting after a spinning attack. Diaz would just kind of punt him in the leg. Ferguson's leg kicks were a real problem for Diaz. Um, that said, Diaz, he's got a bit of a bad rap as far as his defense against leg kicks. It's not great. But it's not nearly as bad as certain talking points would have you believe. Uh, but his lead leg did get chewed up a fair bit here. Um, that said, um, it wasn't quite as consistent. And barring a few points in the third, it never really... Tony never really built off the leg kicks. His front kick game never quite got going the way it normally does. He's normally very active and very good with his front kicks kind of stabbing you to the gut to disrupt you and to break you down. And that struggled to get going. He landed a couple of uppercuts, but... Uh, you know, with his hands, Tony's a bit of a headhunter. And... Nate just used a high guard and kind of blocked most of it. Again, his legs got torn up. Uh, but by the end of the first round, it was the end of the first, like Tony, certainly by the end of the second, Tony Ferguson is bleeding. He's got a couple of cuts around his right eye and Nate Diaz isn't. You know, there's a joke that was that uh, I perpetuated for a while because I thought it was funny. If you're fighting Frankie Edgar and his nose isn't bleeding by the end of the first round, you're in real trouble. Because 
A stiff breeze will get Frankie's nose to bleed. If you're fighting Nate Diaz and you're cut up before he is, that's a really bad sign. Uh, and it was a pretty bad sign for Tony, it turns out. By the time we get to the by the time we get to the fourth round, Tony's slowed down. Um, Nate's kind of able to get him to the fence and get him to stay there a little bit more consistently. Um, Nate's volume punching starts coming up just a bit. Tony, with a essentially a panic shot for a double leg, gets caught in the guillotine on the way down. Um, you know, Nate's jujitsu. I say this. Nate's jiu-jitsu game is a lot more reactive and opportunistic than I think people realize. Which is, to be very clear, that doesn't mean bad. But if Nate has to kind of set up and progress a submission, uh, whoever's working with him can generally deal with that. And there's a reason he struggled with wrestlers who are competent grapplers for that reason, because he has to set everything up. And if he has to set it up, he's not quite the he's not quite the jujitsu technician that other people are off of their back. But he is better than a lot of other very good jujitsu guys, especially in MMA. He is better at recognizing opportunities in transition and grabbing them. Um, but if he has to go like position to position to position, that's where things aren't that's where things don't really go his way. If he's able to catch you as you're taking a bad shot, that in particular, like he's really good about making you pay for that. He's really good about it. And that's what happened here. Uh, Tony Ferguson looked slower, slower of foot than he usually is. Um, he was overswinging a lot. Now, he does that. That's always been kind of a thing with him to kind of set up spinning attacks. But it just, he didn't seem, and some of this is like, hey, I changed opponents from Lijing Leong to Nate Diaz, and they're very different fighters on short notice. Like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm cutting the guy a fair bit of slack here in terms of judgment, but I am going to talk about what happened. Um, yeah, he was just a little bit slow. His um his step up leg kicks, which he has torn people apart with, he just they weren't quite coming the same way they used to. You know, there wasn't the same speed. I don't know if him being at welterweight for the first time in a really long time affected things. It might have. Um, his shot selection, offensively, was not the best. He landed a couple of good uppercuts, but it all seemed just a hair off. His elbows almost never came into play. Just really weird because he's got great elbows. But he couldn't quite get around Nate's guard with them. It just... I don't... I think Tony Ferguson has just taken too much. I'm not saying he can't win fights at welterweight. He, he might be able to. In fact, he probably can. But... He's almost 40. I mean, he's 37. He's 38. He'll be 39 in February. So, again, you're almost 40. 
and and the miles that he's put on his body in that time. Uh, that's just come and do. Look, he w- if you go back and watch the tape on Tony, and I think I said this. Um, he's slowed, he was slowing down before the Gagey fight. Like, look at how he fought Cowboy. Um, it, not that he didn't win the fight. He did, and he won fairly. Or look at the Pettis fight. Like, those, he struggled in those fights. Now, some of that's just, you know, fighting good opponents. Some of that's just how he fights. But if you look at Tony at his best, like, he doesn't quite have the same the best version of Tony doesn't have the same problems that the Tony who fought Cerrone does and then he fights Justin Gagey and that's one of the most brutal fights you'll ever see not say this right like there's other fights with brutal finishes and that's one of the worst prolonged beatings I've seen maybe not the worst because I remember the second fight between Junior Dos Santos and Cain Velasquez, and that got ugly. But, or, um, just what's another really bad one? Um, what, what Amanda Nunes did to, um, Raquel Pennington was pretty bad, too. But there was something about Gagey and Ferguson, man. That beating from Gagey, and Gagey just hits really hard, and he's always a brutal fighter, and it just wouldn't stop. Like, that fight ended at 3.39 of the 5th, and it's not that Tony didn't have success. He scored the only knockdown of that fight, but that's just the kind of beating that changes you, man, and I think... I think we can say at this point that it changed Tony. Now, a lot of other factors, too. Again, he's... Dude's almost 40. That's gonna play a role. But you can't... And it's not like he hadn't taken damage in other fights. You Go back and rewatch his fight with Kevin Lee. That first round, Kevin Lee puts a pretty serious beating on him. Lando Venata almost got him out of there with a head kick. That was a crazy fight. I just, I think that, I think that Bill has basically come due. He might still win a few fights, but I think his time, I think we need to reconcile with the fact that his end is coming sooner rather than later. I mean, the guy's now on a five-fight losing streak. Two of those devastating, again, the, the Gagey fight was a brutal finish, just a, just a brutal fight. And Michael Chandler turned his lights out with that front kick. And look, man, I thought I thought Ferguson won the first round of that fight. But his his head got punted into orbit. I mean, just oof. That's one of the best knockouts all year. Now he got choked out by Nate Diaz. So you're you're on an 0 and 5 skid with three finishes, with being finished in three of those fights. You know there does come a point when you are who your record says you are, at least in the immediate sense. Um, yeah, this was a pretty typical Nate Diaz fight. 
Again, this this was odd. You know, um, I wasn't bored by it, but this did this fight didn't resonate. I don't know why, but it didn't resonate. Maybe I'm just you know, maybe it's because I've been a you know, fan of Tony's for so long, and seeing his decline kind of hurts. But I don't know this this whole thing again. This is just weird. This is a weird fight in terms of actuality. Um, hard to overstate what this means for Nate Diaz, though. You know, he got to go out on a win. Dude, if he had to fight Hamzat, I mean, Hamzat would have turned him into hamburger. Can we just acknowledge that? And look, by the same token, I I picked Lee Jing Leung to beat Tony Ferguson. I think Lee might have hurt Tony pretty badly. So, this worked out better for both guys. It was a more inter, it was a more competitive fight than I think either of them were scheduled for originally. Uh, and yeah, like I mean, that's kind of the long and the short of that. But Diaz gets to go out on a win. Um, he gets to be the hero. Dude, Hamzat, he went full heel this week. And I'm not even mad at him for it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm upset that he missed weight because you, you signed a fight at a weight, you make the weight, right? If you can't make the weight, sign a fight at a different weight. And I know the UFC complicates this because they're the UFC. But functionally, if you signed a fight at 170, you show up to the weigh-ins and you make weight. And he didn't. And he's not even going to be fined over it. I mean, yeah, he's not. Like, that's one of the things that came out. He's not being fined. Because the fight that he eventually signed for was a 180-pound catchweight fight. So 178 is perfectly acceptable. Um, you know, there's a real question about some of the legality of this. Because I believe there's a rule for the Nevada State Athletic Commission wherein once the once the weigh-ins have happened for a main event, you can't change it. Um, now, that might be pursuant to fighters making weight. Often, again, I'm pretty sure that's, an, that's a relevant contingency there. Somebody makes weight, doesn't make weight, by definition, the fight's not, the fight has to be renegotiated. But, it, 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 just a mess. And here's Nate Diaz, showed up, made weight, was himself you know, all week, man. He's just himself. I mean, he always is, but got some fun stuff out of Nate Diaz this week. You know, Nick Diaz was always more media averse. Um, I think that's just his personality. Nate doesn't mind playing the publicity game a little bit. You know, it's kind of got to be on his terms and, you know, he's got how he chooses to negotiate that. But they have Nate and Nick have very different, are very different when it comes to how they interact with, you know, people in that respect. Uh, and you know, for for any number of reasons, like that, that's an observation, not a criticism, of e of either of them. But I mean, he was doing an interview and he dissed the shoes that they had to wear because this got announced a while ago and I think it went into effect recently, 
um, Under Armour and, uh, by extension, Project Rock, the Dwayne Johnson's kind of association with Under Armour. Um, Project Rock is the official, like, shoe wear of the UFC. So fighters have to wear those shoes. And they're, I, th I think they're all required to make media, to make time to talk to, um, Rock is a production company. I think it's Seven Bucks Productions. And UFC fighters have to, you know, make sure that they give interviews and, you know, some kind of media time to that company. Um, now, a couple of things about this. One, I don't really care that the, that, you know, so-and-so was the official whatever sponsor of the UFC in a general sense. I don't care. I do care that the fighters don't get paid. You know, whatever... I mean, this was true of Reebok and the Venom... When Venom came on and replaced Reebok, essentially, they just ported over the pay structure from the Reebok deal. So Venom fight kits and whatnot pay the fighters that same dinky percentage, the percentage of a percentage, that the Reebok ones were. It's pathetic. It's genuinely pathetic. So I don't care that there's an official footwear of the UFC. Fine. Cool. Again, don't care. Genuinely don't care. I do care that fighters have to wear that stuff and aren't compensated for it. You know, they're the ones who... The association with the UFC, the UFC's name has value. But the mileage that you get by that association does not come from the UFC itself. It comes from the fighters. The fighters are not being paid for this. Now, I know nothing about shoe fashion. Nothing. So I'm not, that's not me saying I'm going to, that's not me going to dovetail into saying I don't like the look of the shoes and slippers and whatnot and sandals that Project Rock has. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say they're good, I'm not going to say they're bad. I genuinely know nothing about shoe design and fashion. I don't own a pair, so I'm not going to comment on how they feel and perform. So, some of the more, you know, uh, pedestrian aspects of this, I have no opinion on. I, uh, I just, if you're going to make fighters do stuff like that, fighters should be compensated. My opinion. So the fact that they're not... I don't like it. I don't like it. But he you know, he insulted those. Um, he was just himself. Post-fight interview, he says, I'm going to try to go take over another sport. One would assume boxing. And then try to come back and win a UFC title. Nate had a weird... Look, the the relationship between Nate Diaz and the UFC... And it's been going on for a long time. That's a, what, 17-year relationship at this point? Diaz came in in Tough Five, right? So 2007. So that's, yeah, June of, seven, of 07. So we're, we're 15 years. 15 years that man's been in the UFC. That relationship has been up and down. And it's easy to kind of fix it on the negative. 
because there's been because the negative has been pretty public. You shouldn't forget that there has been positive there as well. So when Nate says stuff at the end, like you know the UFC is the best MMA organization in the world, and I might want to come back. You know, it's it's not really as contradictory as you might think because there have been good times there. It's been it, it's been up and down. Sometimes it's been acrimonious. Sometimes it's been more uh, accommodating. Like that, that's just kind of how that is. Uh, so that's largely that's just me saying. I'd be a little bit surprised if he came back. To be, to be very, very candid, I'd, I'd be a little bit surprised in the immediacy. But, you know, if he comes back later, yeah, wouldn't that wouldn't actually surprise me? You know, the the UFC has at times been good to Diaz. So there, there's been love and hate during that, you know, 15-year period. And just kind of needs to be remembered that, you know, it's not all been bad. And that's not me going to bat for the UFC when I don't think they deserve it. That's an expression of a relationship that's been complicated and has existed for a long time. So presumably Nate will get into boxing. I don't know who he's going to box. Uh, logically, Jake Paul, but we've got Paul and Sylvan. We'll talk about that later. I don't know who he would box who's a legitimate world-class boxer. Um, I think... Mo I'm going to be candid with you guys. I think if Nate gets into boxing and fights a real boxer, I think that probably goes badly for him. Nate's not the best defensively. And he's very slow of foot. You know, that's not always the biggest thing in the world, but when it does matter, it really matters. Are there, you know, lower-level boxers he could beat? Yeah. Would I favor him to beat Jake Paul, actually? It's just boxing? I might... I might, actually. Um, I might favor him to beat Jake Paul in a boxing match. But... I, like, he's not going for a legitimate world title in boxing. There's... Like, there's no real way he finds a lot of success in that avenue, right? I mean, he'd be fighting... What? Either light heavyweight or cruiserweight? So light heavyweight is 168 to 175. And cruiserweight is 175 to 200. He could maybe cut down to super middleweight. Because super middleweight is 160 to 168. That might be more where he is. Um, which, you know... Bad news for you in that department, buddy. Because at the moment, there's only one champion at 168, and it's Canelo Alvarez. Um, that would go badly. I think most... 
Yeah, there's not. I mean, there's not a top ten or so you're super middleweight that I would favor Diaz to beat. Because current rankings, I believe, more or less go like this. You've got Canelo, David Benavides, Caleb Plant, Billy Joe Saunders, Anthony Durrell, John Ryder, David Lemieux, Christian Mbili, Fedor Chudinov, Zach Parker, and Lerone Richards. I mean, again, you may not know a lot of those people, and that's okay, but... And if he actually fights at light heavy, so again, like 168 to 175, I think that goes even worse. I mean, your top champions there are Dmitry Bivol and Arter Beterbiev, who would do terrible things to him. You know, Joe Smith Jr. would probably beat him. Uh... It's if he wants to try it, that's that's a hard road. It's a real hard road to try and go down at his age. But whatever he does next, he's one of the biggest stars in combat sports. Whatever he does next, hope the man gets paid. Hope he gets paid a lot. Um, as for Tony, I mean, if he wants to stick around at welterweight, it's he he shouldn't be fighting ranked guys at this point. Not on the streak he's on. Um, I don't know how much longer he's going to even be doing this at his age and with his miles. That was your main event. Weird fight, but a good story that came out of it. Co-main event, 180 pounds. Kamzat Shemaev runs over Kevin Hall in Darce Choke Submission 213 of the first. Guys, Kevin Holland did... I hate to phrase it this way, because it sounds more dismissive than it is, but Kevin Holland did nothing in this fight. He did not land a single strike. He did not attempt a single strike. He did not get a takedown. He did not get a submission attempt. He did not get a sweep or a reversal. He got no control time. So when I say he did nothing, that's not strictly speaking true. He scrambled with Kamzat for as long as it lasted. He got up at one point. He got Matt returned very quickly. But, I mean, he did nothing. To Kamzat Shemaev. Absolutely nothing. This is the fourth time in Kamzat Shemaev's UFC run that he's won a fight without absorbing a single significant strike. I can't tell you how crazy that is. Look, you don't want to like the guy, fine. Don't like the guy. But... If you take away his fight with Gilbert Burns, and I know that's a big ask because Burns is the best guy he's fought, right? Fair enough. But if you exclude that, he has been hit with one significant strike in five fights in the UFC. So if you take that away, it would be four. So in four of his fights, he's been hit once. I mean, that's legitimately insane. You know, (laughs) look, Hamzad is going to run into someone who can deal with him. Everyone does. And when he crashes and burns, it's going to be spectacular. Because that's what happens to fighters who fight the way he fights. 
But until then, he is going to demolish a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I I don't know what else to tell you about that. Kevin Holland, he's a flawed fighter, but he's not a bad fighter. And literally nothing. Um, Hamzat, Joe Rogan, I think, deserves credit for his post-fight interviews, both with Nate Diaz and here. Like, he really kind of pressed Hamzat on the weight mess, and Hamzat, you know, deflected and whatnot, and then, you know, Doctor did it, and, well, are you going to fight at welterweight or, one, or middleweight? No, I want both belts, and that's not really an answer. Like, good, you want both belts, but you can't keep signing up to fight at welterweight if you can't make it. Now, maybe it was a one-time thing. I don't think he's had any problems in the past, right? As far as we know. Uh, let me double check. His, his professional debut was a catchweight, but I think that was... Again, I think that just was a catchweight fight. I don't know if any either of them missed. Then, I mean, he's bounced between middleweight and welterweight in the past. So, fair. He's got the frame to potentially fight in both weight classes. Okay. But... How old is he, actually? He's 28. So he shouldn't be having, you know, growing into your body at 30. Um... Well, then again, there's some stuff that just shifts as you get older, so I don't know. But I imagine his next fight will not be at welterweight. That's just kind of a hunch I've got. You know, if you're the UFC, you might you might need to kind of insist on that. Um, then again, he's got momentum at welterweight, so who knows? Here's the thing. Here's the thing about comms out at welterweight. I don't know that he's going to want to sit out and wait for the theoretical rematch between Kamaru Usman and Leon Edwards. Um, which is pro which is the fight to make as far as those two go. I don't know if he wants to try and sit out until that happens or if he wants to fight again. If he wants to fight again, there's not a lot of room at welterweight. I think the only guy ranked above him at this point... There'll be a few. You've got the champion Edwards. Usman will have dropped to number one. Colby will be at number two. So he, Hamzat was three, I believe, coming into this at welterweight. The only guy ranked above him who is theoretically free to fight is Colby Covington. Now that's a heck of a fight. Because Colby is tough as nails. And he's not afraid of a pace. And look, Daniel Cormier, not my favorite commentator. I don't like his style. He made a very good point about this fight when he was when Hamzat came out like he did against Holland. You don't fight like this against people that you are worried about. You know, if you empty the gas tank that quickly, and make no mistake, even for someone in good shape, the pace at which Hamzat was fighting in the beginning of this, that is utterly unsustainable. You could not do that for another round. You just can't. Not like that. Maybe with more control, you could make it work, but not the way they were fighting. That, that's It's not sustainable. It isn't. It's a sprint. You can't sprint that long. But 
if you know that you're enough better than the other guy, if you're not worried about the cardio implications because you know you can get rid of them, that's when you do that. Um, he fa- you know, Kamzat faded when he fought Burns. Sorry, he did. Still won the fight, but he faded. You know, Colby doesn't fade. Not really. So, that's a heck of a fight. I don't know that they make it. I don't know that everyone's interested in it. Like, there's a lot of unknowns here. Kamzat may have burned some goodwill. And, like I said, the UFC might say your next one's got to be at middleweight. And he could fight some interesting guys at middleweight and probably do quite well. And if he does have to fight at middleweight... He generated a little bit of beef with Paulo Costa this week. You got Marvin Vittori hanging out there. Um, I mean, Vittori actually kind of interests me, now that I think about it. But there's a lot of unknowns here about his future. As for Holland, I imagine he'll get right back to work at welterweight. I don't think... this. I mean, losing is never good. But all things considered, I don't think he's going to take too much of a hit stock-wise over this. Uh, all right. Next up, uh, another catchweight fight. Daniel Rodriguez defeats Li Jing Liang via split decision, 29-28. Two for Rodriguez, one for Lee. Matt, like I said, Lee got the short end of the stick all week. Um, had this really nice suit that he didn't get to show off at the press conference because it got canceled. Was the only one of the fighters who got to, had to shuffle around who started who wound up giving up weight. You know, he weighed 170. He made weight. So did Rodriguez, and I want to be clear about this. Rodriguez was contracted to fight at 180. He made his contracted weight. The reshuffling is not his fault. But ultimately, Lee did fight a guy who weighed in heavier than he did uh, for the weigh-ins. He wound up fighting a guy much less known than his original opponent. And you could... Let me be clear about this. I don't think he got screwed on the scorecards. Scoring this live, I scored it for Lee. I gave Lee rounds one and two, and I gave Rodriguez three. Thinking back on it, I my opinion, which is not the opinion of the judges, believe it or not. I'll talk about that in a second. Round two was, for me, the swing round. And ultimately, if you give it to Lee... It's because you think a singular flurry of his was more impactful to the fight than the than Rodriguez winning the rest of that round. Or the round rather than the fight, rather, for Lee's thing. And I'm not saying you can't make the argument. I am saying that as I thought back on it, I find it less compelling. So, hindsight for this fight is 29-28 Rodriguez, Lee round one, Rodriguez rounds two and three. Now, the weirdness here... Now, first of all, both guys wound up fighting stylistically very different opponents. Rodriguez went from fighting Kevin Holland, who's a lanky, awkward striker, to fighting Li Jing Leong, who's a more traditional power puncher. Li Jing Leong went from fighting Tony Ferguson, the King of Chaos, to a very, very kind of traditional... Um, boxer leg kicker in Rodriguez. And you have to throw a lot of what you were prepping for out the window. Um, Also, 
Because of how much Tony switches stances, I'm not saying that Lee didn't get looks at Southpaw, but I but he did not train for a dedicated Southpaw. And Rodriguez is a dedicated Southpaw. And I'm sure that monkeyed with stuff. Uh, so this was not a bad fight. You know, the crowd booed this one and just I gotta say this, man, once again, Vegas fight crowds suck. They're they show up late. Dude, you watch the first couple of fights at a UFC event in Vegas when open to the public. I mean, it doesn't look like a major sporting event. It looks like a bomb scare because it's Vegas. Um, I'm not saying this was the best fight in the world. It wasn't. But it was not. It did not deserve to be booed. I've seen, I've, I've kind of come around to like you know, booing fights is not something I necessarily will ever do. There will probably be exceptions to that. Like some fights just. You get fights that just suck. But this was not one of them. This was. It wasn't a barn burner, but it wasn't boring. You know, this, this was two high level guys. On short notice, trying to figure each other out. That's mostly what this was. So if you scored this for Lee, he said, I did in real time, second viewing, rethinking, Rodriguez. But the weirdness can't, the, the weirdness here is the official scorecards. Fun fact about this one. There's not a single round of this fight that all three judges agreed on. That's the kind of fight it was. It was hard, not the easiest fight in the world to judge. So, I know for me... Lee won seems not terribly complicated, but two of the judges gave it to Rodriguez. Round three for Rodriguez doesn't seem terribly complicated. A judge gave it to Lee. It's just... It's just one of those fights that's going to have weird scorecards. And I get it, and it sucks for Lee. Not exactly... This was less than ideal all the way around, but... Rodriguez might find himself ranked at welterweight after this. Li Jingliang was number 14, I believe, at welterweight. Um, and I'm a, like I said, I've kind of been on the Daniel Rodriguez bandwagon a little bit. Uh, he's been out of action for a while, but he's good. I picked him to beat Kevin Lee, actually, in his last fight before this one. And I picked him to beat Kevin Holland here. So... Curious to see what he can do if he can stay active, but you know, Lee's not going to lose too. Like I said he might have he got the short end of the stick, but I don't think he's going to lose too much stock out of this. Um, and he's a more than capable enough fighter, so hopefully he rebounds. Hopefully the UFC does right by him. They're probably not going to because they're the UFC, but you know. Um, catch weight of 140. Man. Um, Irene Aldana defeated Macy Chasson via... I've never seen this. I, I am not... I watch a lot of combat sports. Okay? Not the most. Plenty of people watch... People. There are people who watch more than me. But I would bet I consume more than probably the majority of the human population. And that's not, that's not always saying all that much. You know, there's 7 billion people on the planet or whatnot. How many of them consume a lot of combat sports? Not a lot. But I've never seen an upkick to the body stop someone. 
this was a good fight. I'm a little bit surprised this didn't get fight of the night, to be candid. First round, Aldana's looking pretty good. She's out boxing Chasson. She reverses a takedown. She like ends the round on top. She might have had the back. Um, just clear round for Aldana. Oh, she hurt Chasson a couple of times. Borderline 10-8. Second round, Chasson switches things up and is able to get a takedown. And from top position, she's very good. She passed. She got full mount. She got back mount. Landed damaging shots. Another borderline 10-8. Come into the third. Aldana gets back to the boxing. She's doing okay. Chasson gets a takedown. Aldana kicks her off of her. So Chasson is now standing. And... Aldana lands kind of an axe kick from her back. And I say that because you have to understand the motion involved. This was not a thrusting motion with the foot. This was coming down. So, again, arcing like an axe kick. Um, so striking with the heel instead of, again, pushing out. And she just throws that thing and it hits Chasson in the liver... And Chasson takes half a step back and then drops. And I didn't see what happened. Like I, I sometimes miss little moments because my setup, I have the fights going on my main monitor and I'm typing up in my second monitor. And occasionally, you know, your eyes shift back and forth. I have to watch what I'm writing, double check for typos and whatnot, so... In little bits and points in time, I'm not always studying every detail. Um, so I wasn't quite sure what had happened. I thought maybe there was a low blow. You know, Aldana's throwing up kicks. Chasson tries to step in, catches a kick to the groin, and we get a reset. Like that's. But Herzog, to his credit, man, he waves this thing off. Like he he makes sure there's no ambiguity. Like he steps in, and initially I'm a little bit like. We're getting a timeout here, but then he hands up, waves off, like, no, we're done. Um, replay shows it that uh, just a really nice axe kick heel kind of just impacting and glancing through the liver. I've talked about this a little bit in the past. The end of your liver hangs out under your organs. Sometimes instead of kind of real solid impact, if you get a good grazing or slapping impact, you can have a better result. And for gentlemen out there, if you've ever been hit in the balls, the testicles, sometimes something that impacts and glances is more immediately painful than something that thuds. Not saying either is pleasant. But the same principle applies to, uh, the, to the liver there. Sometimes you want to just stab that thing and you, you thud into it. But you've seen, we've all seen this if you watch enough fighting, you've seen guys take some of those thuds and just kind of, okay, it's not pleasant, but they can keep going. You hit kind of that glancing blow, and they, you still need impact into it, but you get kind of that skipping, slapping motion instead of the full-on thud, and sometimes that's what does it. That kind of motion with the heel here. Nice win for Aldana, and it's not like she pulled out a fluke from nowhere, she not in the best position, but she was working to still fight, found a way to do damage, and got the win. In theory, Aldana is probably 
Aldana might be your next title contender. I don't know. But women's bantamweight is kind of hurting for challengers. Um, and kicking off the main card, Johnny Walker defeated Iwan Kutalaba via rear naked show, 437 of the first. Not a whole lot here. Kutalaba came out, got a takedown. Walker reversed, got up, got a takedown, got full mount, got the back, fought for it, got the choke. Um, the weirder story about this comes after the fight, where John Kavanaugh, and at the moment Walker trains at least partially out of SBG Ireland with Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh puts on social media that, like, essentially immediately after the fight, the UFC, like, UFC officials put him and Walker out of the arena. Like, without shoes. I mean, for, Johnny Walker still is... His gloves are still on. Like, <laughs> weird. Now, that's assuming Kavanaugh's telling the truth, and I don't have a lot of reason to disbelieve him, but for whatever it's worth, that is just one side of the story. But man, what a weird... Like, I'm wearing a shirt. You know, no shoes, no shirt, fight gloves still on, still wearing his fight trunks. Like, just weird. Just weird. Uh, he needed that win, man. He badly needed that win. I don't know that it's, you know, some kind of reformative or transformative moment for him. I kind of doubt it. But a loss here would have re might have ended his, like, legitimacy in the UFC. So. Yeah, that was your main card. Um, as for the prelims, Julian Arosa defeats Hakeem Dawadu via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Again, Dawadu missed weight. Arosa just kind of made this his fight. And not quite as technical, a little bit less reliant on hand speed. Landed some nice uppercuts, finding good at finding in-between places to land damage. Uh, spent a lot of time on the back in the first and second round. Daniel Cormier randomly in the middle of this fight, and it's the start of the third round, going, you know, Arosa might be sitting on what he thinks is a lead, and this is why I don't like open scoring. You know, we'd see that so much more. And oh god, shut up. You know, you know whose opinion I care about when it comes to open scoring or not. I've said this in the past. I would like to see it tried. I'm curious because I'm a curious fellow. You're the only person whose opinion matters about when it comes to open scoring or closed scoring. There is one category of people who matter in this instance, and only one, and that's the fighters. That's it. That is it. You can make an argument for the fans either way. Some fans like to be in the know, some fans prefer the drama. Whatever. You can make an argument for promoters. I think most promoters don't care. But then again, the UFC cares about weird stuff, so maybe they oppose it. I mean, I have a hard time believing Daniel Cormier expressed an opinion that was not endorsed by the UFC when it comes to stuff like this. Because he's he's a company guy. And look, the UFC pays him. And so does ESPN. Like I'm, but there's almost no chance that if the UFC is pro-open scoring, he says that. Just put it like that. Um, look, if fighters and coaches want open scoring, they should get it. Full stop. They're the ones risking everything. They're the ones who have to deal with this crap. They're the ones who suffer financial consequences. 
They're the ones who suffer health consequences. The financial ones are really big. If you think you should be winning and you're going to lose half your purse because you're operating in the dark. Like, that... That's just not right. Now, again, if fighters prefer it the other way, whatever. Like that, But that should be their call, no one else's. Straight up, no one else's. Not the fans. Fans don't matter about this. You, don't, you me, we don't matter. Might turn out that I hate it if it, if it goes into effect, and I, just, I hate it. I don't, my opinion doesn't matter. The, UFC's, the UFC brass, their opinion does not matter. They gain and they lose nothing. Fighters gain and lose based on this. That's it. They're the ones whose opinion should matter. No one else's. But good win for Arosa. Um, I picked him to win this, and he was the underdog. A little bit surprised he was the dog here. I mean, Dawidu's a guy who's got a lot of flash, but he's always... He struck me as one of those guys who showed good potential early, but that impression never evolved in the minds of a lot of pundits. So people think he's better than he is, which is not to say that he's bad, but... Uh, I've never been as high on him as other people. And I get that he's one of those guys that the UFC is like kind of trying to rally the Canadian market with, but the Canadians did not have a great night last night. I mean, not the worst, but they did not have a great night. Who won for the... Hang on, who was the Canadian that won? Because um, that's... Well, cause that's American, Brazilian, Russian, American, Brazilian, Chinese, American. Oh, Lanus. Right, that was it. Yeah, rough night for Canadian MMA. They went one and two. So, good win for Arosa. Um, we had a catchweight fight of 220 pounds. This was a catchweight because Anton Turkali took this fight on fairly short notice. Um, Jailton Almeida was supposed to fight... Um, Shamil Abdurahimov. And Abdurahimov had visa issues. So Turkali took the, again, took the fight on somewhat short notice, so they agreed to 220. I think Turkali's normally a light heavyweight. And Almeida's looking to apparently make a legitimate move to heavyweight, so. He'll probably be more in the 230s going forward. Uh, but Almeida kind of ran him over. Got a quick takedown. Good passing, good mat returns. Eventually got the back hit. The way he set up this choke actually is really sweet. Look up the clip. He attack. He's um. He's on the back of Turkali and he's he's got Turkali kind of belly down, not flattened out, but Turkali is turning more face down, and he's landing punches with his left hand. So Turkali is turning to his right, giving up his back as he does so, or more giving up his back. And he turns into the choking arm of uh, Almeida and actually just kind of puts his, own ne- puts his own neck into the choke position, which is a really nice setup. Almeida's legit. He's a very legitimate guy who's going to be making some waves, I think. How high up he's able to get, I don't quite know, but pay attention to him. Uh, middleweights, Dennis Tululin defeated Jamie Pickett via TKO, knees and punches for 52 of the second. 
Um, Pickett likes things to be technical and at distance, and Tallulah just walked him down and made it less technical and more of a fight. And just kind of broke him down, kept the pressure up, eventually got the win. Um, technically speaking, a catch weight, 267 and a half. Chris Barnett defeats Jake Collier via TKO, um, punches, like, mount. 224 of the second. Pretty wild fight here. Um, Collier drops Barnett early with a right hand. Barnett's face got messed up. His left eye was badly swollen. Um, he started having, like, if you look at his face, the left side of his mouth, he lost control of for a bit. Um, apparently it's a thing. I double-checked this with a few people I know who have more experience than I do. You can get hit so hard that you get stroke-like symptoms in your face. Um, I think, uh, I actually think Hafthor Bjornsson got some of this when he was lifting for li from lifting too heavy, so he might have actually kind of ruptured something. But that's a thing, apparently. Anyway, Barnett, he gets kind of beat up the first round, but he stays with it, keeps fighting. Second round, blocks a takedown, gets on top of him. He's a big boy on top of him and just pounds him out. Wild back and forth, sloppy fight, but entertaining. Um, hopefully Barnett can make weight next time, or we find some way to... Find some way to jack up the upper limit. Like, is there a reason it's not 270? Just throwing it out there. There's no reason for it. I don't know why the weight class is the way it is. Uh, so on the early prelims, then, Norma Dumont defeats Daniel Wolfie, unanimous decision, 230-27, it's 130-26. I was 30-25. I gave Dumont 10-8s in rounds 2 and 3. Um, Daniel Wolf was a fairly decorated amateur boxer, but... She's over 40, and I talked with my with Pat Mullen about this, who's been on the show in the past. And Pat made, I think, the most salient observation. This is not a distinction we see a lot in MMA, but he noted that Daniel Wolf fights too much like an amateur now that she's fighting professionals. Amateur boxing and professional boxing are very different animals in a lot of respects. And making that transition is not easy. There are plenty of very good amateur boxers who never make good professionals. And there are some people with great success on the professional level who never attain success as an amateur. So, and Wolf still fights a little bit in the kind of amateur boxing mentality. And Dumont was able to find punches and just you know, be the superior MMA fighter. Dumont says, I'm the challenger at women's featherweight to Amanda Nunes, and sure, you're one of the only other people competing in that division regularly, so whatever. Um, bantamweight, Alatong Hele defeated Chan and Helliger via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. A decent fight. Um, Alatong Hele, just more power, slightly more technical striking. Uh, he heard Anheliger more than once. Anheliger's got a chin on him, man. He he absorbed some pretty serious damage here and stuck it out. Uh, good win for Alatanghele, who's a... He's an interesting addition at bantamweight. I mean, he's... What is he in the UFC? And he, again, he's had a couple of losses. He lost to Kenny. He lost to Casey Kenny. And then um, had the draw with Gustavo Lopez after... He did that to himself, man. Kept grabbing the cage in the third round, and the ref took a point, and otherwise he would have won 29-28. But it might be time to step him up in class a little bit. Women's strawweight, Elise Reed defeated Melissa Martinez via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. 
Uh, good first round for Martinez, but Reed just kind of kept coming on, and Martinez faded. Then kicking everything off, Johan Lanis defeated Darian Weeks via split decision, 29-28. Uh, I scored this for Lanis, so, but it wasn't a great fight. All right, there was no fight of the night. Again, I think both, um, I think Barnett versus Collier and Aldana versus Chasson might have got a little bit screwed here. Your performances of the night went to Nate Diaz, Irene Aldana, Johnny Walker, and they threw Johnny Walker out of the venue in his fight shoes, but gave him a post-fight bonus. And Jailton Almeida. No issues with any of that. Um, I mean, you could, you know what? You couldn't, you couldn't bonus Chris Barnett because he missed weight. I forget the UFC does that. So there's that. Um, all right. So for the last few pay-per-views, I've kind of been bemoaning the fact that what used to be public information about the Crypto.com, you know, popularity contest that pays out fighters in Bitcoin who win the polling on their website has not been made public. And apparently at the moment, they're in the midst of restructuring that. And I can't imagine why. Could it be that the crypto markets are crashing horribly? I mean, they are doesn't necessarily mean there's not money to be made there because there's money to be made in downward markets as well. But like, why aren't they doing that anymore? Well, hmm, can't imagine. So that ultimately that was UFC 279. Totally wild fight week. Totally wild. But if you're interested in my full report, it is in the MMAZona411mania.com. All right, let us move along to... UFC, eh, plus some place. UFC on ESPN plus 68. This is not the world's best fight on paper. But we have some good stuff here. So main event, I like the main event a lot. Corey Sandhagen and Song Yudong, really good fight. Sandhagen has given the very best in this division some serious fights. I thought he beat TJ Dillashaw. Um, Jan beat him. The loss to Jan was legitimate, and Aljamain Sterling choked him out, but... Uh, he's a very good fighter. He's still fairly... Yeah, he's only 30. So if he can sort a few things out, like, that's a... He's a very, very legitimate member of the top of the bantamweight division. And Song has been coming on lately. Uh, his only loss in the UFC is to Kyler Phillips. There's a draw in there with Cody Stamen where he was... Uh, he got deducted a point for an illegal knee. Last seen knocking out Marlon Marais. Now, this is a... Yeah, this is a good fight. My hunch is Sandhagen. One... For a couple of reasons. One, five rounds. Uh, the first time going five rounds can be daunting. Now, Song can win this fight. He's got fast hands, and he's got power. And he might be a stout enough defensive wrestler to kind of limit Sandhagen's offense there. But Sandhagen's very good about mixing things together in a lot of those ways. Uh, Sandhagen also is a Song tends to rely a little bit on reads. And Sandhagen is just a little bit unpredictable. A little bit of sarcasm there, actually. Sandhagen's... He's a bit of a wild man. Uh, Sandhagen likes to kind of play speed chess. 
be that on the feet or on the ground. So I'm leaning towards Sandhagen, but that's a very good fight. I'm very much looking forward to it. All right, middleweight. Chidian Jakawani will fight Gregory Rodriguez. I, I I like Rodriguez. He's only got one loss in the UFC. He's 3-1. and one. He knocked out Julian Marquez in the first round his last fight. Um, and Jaquani's had two fights in the UFC. Both ended in the first round. Um, yeah, we're in for this. Circle this one, man. Uh, Sandhagen and Song might wind up a little bit too... Like, there could be some really interesting technical decisions that go on there. And Jaquani and Rodriguez is... These two guys are going to go after it. My hunch is Rodriguez, but Njikwani hits hard enough. I'm not entirely sure about that one. I'm leaning Rodriguez, but that that's a tough one to predict. Featherweights, Andre Feely and Bill Algio. Andre Feely, saying for the last... He's 32, saying for the last five years, I figured it out and I'm coming for the belt. Um, his last win was in 2020 when he had a split decision win over Charles Jordan. He was stopped by Joe Anderson Brito his last time out in 41 seconds. Um, Bryce Mitchell beat him in October of 2020. This will be very telling for Andre Feely. Bill Algio, again, been a little bit up and down. Lost his UFC debut in a fight of the night, though, against uh, Ricardo Lamas. Uh, had a loss to Ricardo Hamos along the way, but he's won his last two. <sighs> this is a bit of a step up for Algio and a bit of a better turn your fortunes around for Feely. I'm going to lean towards Algio, but this could very easily be too much too soon for him. And we got a heavyweight fight. God help us. Tanner Bozer and Rodrigo Nascimento. Bozer knocked out Ovin St. Preux in his last fight. That was over a year ago, though, in June of 2021. Um, Nascimento won his UFC debut as uh, lost to Chris Dawkins, then had a no contest when he fought Alan Badeau. The drug test issue, right? Yeah. I'm going to pick Bozer, I guess. But, boy, I don't care. Um, On the main card, we were supposed to have a fight I was looking forward to. Uh, Giga Chikadze and Sadiq Youssef. Chikadze withdrew, had to withdraw from that fight uh, in the last little bit. So, they're looking for a replacement. That sucks. I was looking forward to that fight. Um... So that's what we have listed for the main card. We were also supposed to get... I mean, Algeo is actually filling in for Lando Venata, because we were supposed to get Venata and Feely. Um, Who did we lose here? Uh, we lost Sajara Eubanks and Marina Moroz. Meh. All right, moving on to the rest of the card here. Middleweight, Anthony Hernandez and Marc-Andre Barrio. Anthony Hernandez. 
Okay. Wanted to make sure he was who I'm thinking of, and he is. Um, Barrio's a tough guy. It's hard to get him out of there. Not impossible, but hard. Uh, he tends to take a lot of damage, but just keep coming and try to break you down as the fight goes on. He's 3-1 and one in his last four, though. Uh, I'm going to pick Hernandez. But... Uh, Hernandez might want to bring a lunch. Like Marc-Andre Barrio is that kind of fighter. Like You better be ready for the long haul. Featherweights, Damon Jackson and Pat Sabatini. Sabatini's on a good winning streak overall, including three wins in the UFC. Both men more on the grappling side of things. Um, Jackson's only loss in the UFC, he got knocked out by Ilya Teporia. But he's won his last three fights. Sorry, since his return to the UFC. Previously, back from 14 to 16, he went... 0 1 and 1 with a no contest. Hmm. Um, feels like Sabatini here. I, th but, I don't know, does it? I'm going to pick Sabatini here, but I am not confident in that. All right, welterweights, Trevin Giles and Louis Kosi. Sure, I'll pick Giles. Middleweights, Joseph Pfeiffer and Alan Amadovsky. Amadovsky needs a win, man. He's 0-3 in the UFC. Um, I'm going to... I'll lean towards Am... Am I really? No, I'm not. Going with the other guy. Don't care. Women's bantamweight, Aspen Ladd and Sarah McMahon. Um, like, I have deep respect for Sarah McMahon. But, I don't know, man. Lad's struggled. Lad's really struggled recently. McMahon just struggles after the first round generally, though. That's tough. That's actually a tougher pick than you might think. I'm going to, I'll pick McMahon, but, mm. Uh, let's see. Women's um, we have strawweight Denise Gomez and Loma Lukbunmi. I'll go with Lukbunmi, sure. Uh, lightweights Trey Ogden and Daniel Zellhuber. Pull a coin on that one. Um, Ogden. Coin came up heads. Ogden. Women's flyweight Maria Agapova and Jillian Robertson. Be interesting, actually. Agapova been up and down in the UFC. That loss to Marina Moros might have been a, might have been a real problem for her. Robertson again another up and down one, but she's had good wins. She had some tough losses too. Hmm. I think I'm gonna lean Agapova, but I might be eating a lot of crow over that one. Bantamweights, Tony Gravely and Javid Basharat. I think that's Gravely. Yeah, that's Gravely, as far as picks go. And kicking everything off, Nicholas Mata and Cameron Van Camp. I believe I went Van Camp. Like, some of these were originally for 
279 and kind of got reshuffled and whatnot. So, yeah, I think I'm going with Van Camp there. But, again, that I'm not sure about that one at all. With the potential to add fights for either Sajara Eubanks and or Sadiq Yusuf if they can find opponents, I don't mind picking both of them in the dark, believe it or not. So, take that for what it's worth. That will be this Saturday, September 17th. I will be covering that, as, of course, in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com, so please stop by and say hello if you are so inclined. Alrighty, let's move on to news, such as it is. All right, it's official. Anderson Silva versus Jake Paul. They have signed that fight. It will. Uh, it is going to take place in Arizona. And let me double check the date. Have a quick look. Um. Do we have a specific date? Hang on. October 29th. That was it. Not too long after my birthday. So October 29th, uh, Anderson Silva, Jake Paul, set to take place in Phoenix. Yeah, it was Phoenix, Arizona. That's kind of my assumption. That's usually where sporting events in Arizona are held. Uh, We'll keep you updated. My hunch is Silva. I'm not discounting Jake Paul. I've been I've come on this show and kind of said a lot of people are not people are not able to give sober assessments of Jake Paul in a lot of ways, but I I like Silva there a little bit. That's my hunch. That is my hunch. But we'll keep you apprised of what goes on with that particular fight as it draws closer. Because of course we do. All right. Uh, last bit of news I have written down here. The Darren Till is back. Again. Yay. Thing is up. The UFC is targeting Till versus Drikus Duplessis for UFC 282. That's a rough welcome back for Till. I I think Drikus Duplessis is a really legitimate guy. He doesn't do everything traditionally, but uh, I, I kind of like him. Uh, he's had some good wins under his belt. That'll be a tough fight. It's it's not impossible for Till to win it, but that is a that's a fairly rough welcome back. Duplicy will put some hands on you if given the opportunity. So that's as far as that goes. Um, oh, we did get official Poirier versus Chandler. I think I might have talked about this last week. For UFC 281, I mean, there's no way that fight sucks. There's no way Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler is a bad fight. It's not possible. Uh, All right. I think that's everything I've got here. Let me check Twitter. And if nothing crazy is broken in the MMA sphere, we will do plugs and get out of here. Nope. Does not look like it. All right. So what do we got this week? The usual spate of professional wrestling coverage. AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday. MLW sometime this month. So maybe Tuesday, or Tuesday, maybe Thursday, maybe not. We'll have to wait and see. But when they start airing product again, I will be covering it. WWE SmackDown on Friday. There is a damn you Hollywood this week. We will be covering the Robert Zemeckis adaptation of Pinocchio on Disney+. Plus. That will be myself, Mark Radulich, and Alexis Haina over on Damn You Hollywood 
tune in if you're interested, and we're gonna we're gonna break that movie down. That'll be fun. All right. Yeah, damn you, Hollywood's being a little bit light this month. September does not have a lot of good film releases. It just doesn't. No two ways about it. All right, so be on the lookout for that. If you want to catch my other podcasting endeavors, we will be back here next week to review UFC on ESPN Plus 68. And, wait, have another month, another week off? Must confirm. We do, actually. There is no UFC event September 24th. So just a review next week. The next UFC event is UFC on ESPN Plus 69 will take place October 1st, headlined by Mackenzie Dern and Jan Shaunan. Also on that fight card, Cody Garbrandt versus Ronnie Yaya. That's important for both gentlemen. Uh, Heine Barcelos and Trevin Jones. It ain't great. Uh, look a little further down. Okay, it's not great. But it's also not terrible. It's a very, very, like, aggressively average card. So, two weeks we'll preview that. Next week, just the review and whatever news comes out of the week per usual. All right, that is it for me. Thank you, as always, for listening. I will see you next time. Until then, as always, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.